This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot and they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May, and again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates, and that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick-and-mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the U.S., My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show retired Naval Commander former head psychologist for the Navy SEALs and co-author of Learned Excellence, Dr. Eric Potterat. 
So as you can imagine, there are very few people more apt than Dr. Potterat to talk about mental health and mental performance in the uniform professions. So we discuss a host of topics from the space program, working with the LA Dodgers, SEER, the concept of learned excellence, stress inoculation, overcoming fear, his work with Dr. Kirk Parsley when it came to sleep deprivation in the SEAL teams, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 900 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Dr. Eric Potterat. Enjoy. Well, Eric, I want to start saying two things. Firstly, thank you so much to Ted Brown, one of my fellow 7Xers uh, when we went around the world about a year ago today. Um, and secondly, I want to welcome you onto the Behind the Shield podcast. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, for having me, James. Really honored and uh, it's a privilege to be here. Looking forward to the conversation today. So how did you, uh, Ted's and your path cross? So I started working, I uh, started becoming deeply embedded in various business verticals, trying to, you know, really teach performance optimization from the neck up and between the ears and evidence-based practices, all of that, to various, various business verticals. And uh, insurance was one of them. And Lockton worked with them for about uh, seven years or so. And Ted and I uh, have have worked a lot together on both him and and the organization. So yeah, fantastic. Well, we're obviously going to focus more of the in uniform side. I mean, I, I listened to one of your episodes with Ryan Hawk on his podcast, and it was it was excellent. It really was. But it seems like you know that's another entire group of people that are going to find all the value in your latest book. But the parallels and the life journey that you've been through, I think, is going to be invaluable, especially invaluable, excuse me, especially for the people in uniform. So let's start at the very beginning of your own life journey then. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. Yeah, that's great. So uh, thank you. I was I was born in Redding, California, uh, very top of the great state of California, about 60, 70 miles from the Oregon border. Small town, um, about four hours north of San Francisco, so truly northern California. Uh, born uh, as an only child, uh, two parents, obviously, mom and dad. Mom, uh, dad was an immigrant from Switzerland, I think, uh, immigrated uh, when he was 12 in 1956. Uh, they then moved to uh, first Atlantic City and then ultimately Santa Monica, California where he met my mom, they went to high school, all of that good stuff. Uh, and then they moved to Redding, California. I was born and raised there. Very small town. I mean, I grew up and it was about 20,000 people. And then I think maybe 80 or 100,000 now. Um, went to, you know, completed high school, then went to college uh, at UC Davis. 
uh, down by Sacramento, got a, a degree there in psychobiology, um, took about, uh, boy, oh boy, almost two years off after I graduated. Uh, first year kind of just hung out and wanted to, with my college roommate, went to Europe with a backpack and just tried to do that, you know, proverbial odyssey and try to see a bunch of the things we had been studying and reading about. And then I started working in psychology. I had a bachelor's of science, a BS in psychology, started working uh, in psychology um, with severely emotionally disturbed kids. Uh, There's not much you can do with a bachelor's degree, uh, but I felt like I wanted to make an impact and kids that were like in foster homes and whatnot. Um, Did that for about a year. uh, And one of the clinical directors at that program in Sacramento had a PhD in psychology and took me aside and said, hey, have you you thought about, you know, going further in your graduate studies and and maybe applying to graduate school? I said, I had. Um, So long story short, uh, kind of launched, I don't know if you want me to keep talking about this, but launched, you know, towards towards a professional degree, my PhD. So I want to go back just for a moment and obviously we'll move forward again. Firstly, I love the immigrant stories. Obviously, as you can tell, I am an immigrant to the US and there's so many different kind of experiences, some purely positive, some quite negative. I would imagine someone coming from Switzerland, if they found themselves amongst people that weren't aware of the differences in European countries very soon after World War II could possibly have some negative experiences too. So what was your father's experiences of, of coming to the US? Yeah, I have to I have to kind of pay homage and, and give kudos to, to his parents as well, because that, that, I mean, we've all experienced adversity and I'll never, I don't get paid enough to judge anyone's adversity, but I can't even imagine the risk of literally taking your family. My, my dad has two brothers um, or had two brothers, one has passed. Um, and literally when they made the decision to come to the United States in 1956, they, they actually left one of the sons behind. Um, you know, they had a couple hundred dollars and a few chests full of all their belongings. By the way, one of those chests ended up being uh, stolen, you know, gone when they arrived to Atlantic City. So literally it'll arrive with, you know, a little bit of money and one of the two chests of all of your life belongings and not knowing much English. And to your point, I mean, you know, the schooling system in the United States and it's my dad and his brother's. Eventually, the other brother came over as well, as well as my paternal grandparents literally, um, you know, came to the land of opportunity and and had to kind of from the bootstraps, you know, really earn everything um, and, and start over. So that was a challenge for sure. So now what about you in the school age? You ended up working from the psychology point of view with some of the most elite teams in the U.S. What were you playing as far as being a young boy? Uh, so I was, uh, I was always into like, you know, soccer and first baseball and baseball kind of bored me and we'll get into that later and then got into soccer. And then I really found my niche in tennis. Um, I, I really enjoyed highly competitive tennis, uh, from high school and beyond. Um, you know, started avidly following people like Boris Becker and, you know, just really trying to, I was, you know, this was back in the day, obviously pre-internet and we had VCR. So I would record literally every match of these gentlemen and put them on, you know, super slow motion speed so I could watch exact placements of feet and hands. And nowadays technology is markedly different. So 
um, yeah, it was just, I, I certainly enjoyed tennis uh, a lot as an outlet, as a, as a young kid. So Now you touched on baseball. This is going to be an interesting kind of perspective that you bring. I, when I first moved to the U.S., it was almost like jarring hearing over and over again what I call the Uncle Rico story. So I would meet men around my age, you know, late 30s, early, uh, sorry, late 20s, early 30s, and decondition now. And it's always the same. It was like, well, I played in high school or I played in college at this high, high level until ACL, MCL, whatever the, the thing was. And then it was a complete screech halt to their, um, their, their movement journey, if you like. When I contrast that to Europe, um, a lot of us, we just don't play at that higher level in school or in college. But there seems to be longevity in sport. So you have, you know, pub leagues and local leagues, and you'll see men in their 40s and 50s in the UK still playing football, rugby, all the things. What is your perspective on youth sports? Obviously, I'm talking about the, the physical side, but from more from the, the psychological side, because what I see is the the lines between performance and wellness sometimes are blurred, and sometimes the success of a sporting program comes at the detriment of some of these young athletes. Yeah. So this, A, this is the first time I've been asked this question. B, it's arguably one of the best questions I've been asked and I'm passionate about this. So I'm not a big social media guy, unfortunately, uh, I guess, but I, I do do LinkedIn and I posted a, a, maybe a year ago, a, a while ago, very uh, seminal uh kind of synopsis and, and research from the Norwegians um, on, on precisely what you're saying. And, and what, you're, what you're talking about are the difference between kind of being generalized or being specialized. And in, in the U.S., I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, pardon the pun, I'm going to generalize for the U.S. because there are certainly people who don't do this. But for the most part, within the U.S., they, we have focused for, for years, it seems, on a very specialization-heavy focus whether it's middle school, high school, you know, start really believing that your son or daughter is going to be the next thing since whatever. And, and all the energy and all the passion, the parental uh, passion and energy, I'm going to be polite on some of these soccer fields and, and baseball fields is just frankly appalling at times. But nonetheless, I think philosophically, back to your question, the Europeans and per particularly the reason the Norwegian study was so interesting to me was because Norway just cleans everyone's clock in, in the, you know, in the winter Olympics. And when you look at per capita, they really shouldn't be doing that. Uh, so it really, I think causes a lot of people, a lot of the so-called experts to really look under the, the hood and see why that is. And in fact, they really do emphasize, not unlike what you just said, James, this generalized approach. They want their, their youth to really experience many, many things as the brain is developing rather than emotionally and physically and identity-wise get attached to one. And that seems to be learning to, leaning towards a lot of burnout as well, which I think you're alluding, alluding to. So, Well, we'll get into the, the parallels later when it comes to in uniform, but even in this, there's a fallacy, I think, that you know, if you want to squeeze out elite performance it's got to be at the detriment of wellness to a point but then con um, conversely if you take finland and their education system 
their days are shorter. There's a lot more play. I had a, a guy, Passy Salberg, on who's um, Finnish, but he lives in Australia now and tours the world talking about their system. And they look at the holistic child as a whole, and they put more money into the, the schools that are struggling. So it's kind of the opposite of what we do here. Yet when you look at the league tables as far as academics, again, as you said, they clean everyone's clock educationally. Yeah, fascinating to me. It's not a surprise. And I think... Look, I can go down this rabbit hole. I think it is somewhat sad. And again, I'll just make this my personal opinion, but I think it's sad because I, th I think the data is fairly clear. I mean, regardless of discipline, and we'll get into this with respect to balance, the more balanced people are, the more balanced performers are. And you can define performer as men and women in uniform, men and women in a sport uniform, business, it doesn't matter. The, the evidence is clear when you look at the meta-analyses. It's clear as day. I mean, the People who have balance are more innovative. They live longer. They live healthier lives. Ironically, they're more productive in their craft, which is interesting because, it, you know, the old wives' tale is you can't be balanced and, and be good at what you do. In fact, that's, that's not only wrong, it's dead wrong. So... Another interesting perspective that someone recently said to me, and it was so spot on because I was seeing it in my son at the time, was you already have these kids that maybe are driven down one lane of, of specialization, but then they have this, I must earn a scholarship thing. And I watched my son do the same thing. He ran track for the last two seasons. He got down to basically a sub, just, just under a five-minute mile. So it was on track. But I watched... I watched him burn out and he wasn't even being pushed hard. You know, it was just the training that he was being expected to do. But mentally, he was ready to do something else. And today he's actually trying out for the volleyball team. And I think he was almost worried about um, how we would react. And it's like, Ty, I want you to enjoy sport. That's what it's supposed to be like. But what are you seeing as far as that added layer of extrin extrinsic negative um, stress that it's not even the sport. It's this thing outside of the sport that these children are feeling like they have to achieve as well. Totally agree. And most of that, you know, I, I, I'm going to create a lot of hate mail, I'm sure in coaching staff or parents here. And I don't mean to do that, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just going to be honest. I mean, this is, I, I, when you look at statistically, just, you just take a look at like analytically the, the parents that usually have the most venom and most passion if they had spent half of that time really having their kids just have fun, that's the F word that everyone's forgetting here. And we talk about this in the book, not to mention the book, but with Nathan Chen, who is probably the, the, the greatest example of this, you know, the, for America, he was, you know, the, the, the guaranteed gold medal in the, you know, 2018 Olympics and, and faltered and then really unpacked that himself. And, found that he wasn't having fun. He was you know, winning everything prior to that, but was really focusing on the wrong thing. So he and I engaged and we really got back to the basics. And I, for all of the listeners out there, the parents and the coaches and support staff for, you know, in uniform as well, like at the end of the day, this is the most important thing. Is your son or child or are you having fun at what you're doing? And I think that this push to come full circle to what you said about scholarships, I mean, my goodness, the odds of your son or daughter becoming an Olympic gold medalist or a professional, you know, insert the blank, footballer, baseballer, doesn't matter. They're very slim. I hope it happens, but you're more likely to happen if the person is having fun and on an incremental trajectory of improvement rather than, my gosh, you have to get that scholarship. You know, it's, it's crazy. I mean, literally crazy. So. 
athletically, I've heard over and over and over again. It's amazing when you have you know almost nine hundred episodes. The Venn diagram really overlaps, and you see a lot of truth. And these people are from all walks of life, but the multi-sport athlete seems to be a lot more resilient physically. What are you seeing as far as psychologically? Same, absolute same. Uh, I think that the the, the more uh, varied experiences that you can give the human brain. I mean, we're talking about at some level, not to be too geeky here, but we're talking about stress inoculation, right? I mean, we're talking about giving the, 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 the neuroplastic brain that is developing, continuing to develop, but absolutely developing, especially to the ages of like 18 to 24. I mean, adolescent brains are, are very plastic. I mean, they are they are developing at an incredible rate. And if the brain is firing, the brain is wiring. And therefore, you want it to have as many different stages of exposure as possible. So I'm a big fan philosophically and practically at just exposing youth, exposing young adults to just a variety of things, music, languages, different sports, just, just for exposure sake, as opposed to I need to become an expert in this craft. That's where the narrative, I think, and we can get into all sorts of <laughs> sidetracks as to why that is with social media and you know various spokespeople in different platforms, whether they're athletes, musicians. And the irony of all of this, to be honest, James, is when you when you actually sit with these high performers, literally most of them, literally, will 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 set a breadcrumb history that all you need to do is follow. And they've been exposed to a lot of different things, a lot of micro failures, a lot of challenges where their, their plastic brain was developing. Now, a lot of them have great coaching staff, great mentors, great coworkers, great teammates that help coalesce that and craft that and kind of chip that diamond along the way. But Anyhow, long story short, yes, I think exposure to a variety of things is where people ought to be focusing. Let's take that tangent because almost every single person I've had on here, when we've discussed the mental health of our youth, social media comes up over and over and over again. So I'd love you to unpack that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, this is this is one of those, sheesh, it's a double-edged sword, right? I, I you know, just a book released last week with a co-author. And so, I mean, obviously social media helps, helps catapult careers, helps catapult exposure. That's just the, the nature, you know, we're all kind of plugged in as it were. So I will say this for the developing brain, I'm more concerned about identity early on. And I think social media by definition is very reputationally based meaning I often say, you know, I can post a picture of anything, a slice of pizza, a sunset, and I'm literally going to be judged by thumbs up or thumbs down, how many likes or dislikes I have to that image that I'm posting. Now we can go past images as well. We can have narrative, right? I can have an opinion that I post and I can be judged on that. The immediacy of the feedback is profound. So I, I am, you know, I don't want Facebook, LinkedIn, or whatever to start sending me hate mail. I think if it's if it's weaponized and used carefully and properly, it can be a powerful thing for just consuming knowledge, right? It shrinks the world. So we can, assuming the the, the information is valid and vetted, and we can get into that later. But I, I, I'm 
I'm mostly agnostic with a leaning in towards we need to be very careful in the developing brain on how identity is tied to social media. So, Well, firstly, I want to put this out. So your book is Learned Excellence. Feel free anytime to insert anything from the book because, I mean, there's so much wisdom in there. Um, and I don't, I wasn't able to get a copy in the end. It never came through. So I haven't had a chance to look at it yet, but I'm looking forward to it coming out. Uh, actually, it's just come out, isn't it? The ninth, is that right? It has. It came out on the sixth. Um, you know, shame, shame on our publicist. We'll make sure you, you get that for sure. So no problem at all. And this is what I love about podcasts. So you can usually glean some of the, the pillars at least. Um, with that being said though, while we're on the subject and again, especially from a psychological, psychological lens, it appears to me that there is far more narcissism in the world than a lot of us realize. And I mean that empathetically, because to me, narcissism is an expression of a void, an expression of maybe some mental ill health. But when you look at men, women, children, on a lot of these social media platforms, it is a lot of selfies and look what I can do. So what has been the reception of social media and has that come up? Because I don't think it's evident you know, when, when you didn't have a platform that showed millions and millions of people, you didn't really have a, a baseline on whether that was actually a pretty significant mental health issue in a lot of people. I Look, I think you hit the nail on the head. I'm not sure I could. I mean, that's, that's beautifully stated. I, I think by definition, a lot of social media is fueling kind of a me, my, I culture within self, as well as the ecosystem of, around that person. But it really is me, my, I driven. And when you look at a lot of other organizations, they're more we, us, ours driven, whether it's the military, I mean, true quiet professionals doing the work that they do without fans, without blogs, without agents. Uh, and the same can be said about, you know, first responders. I know obviously the, the media is sometimes there, but generally speaking, you know, firefighters and, and policemen and women, they don't have a fan base that is like literally following, following them with webcams or whatnot. So, or jerseys sold or, you know, this stuff. So I, I do think this me, my, I culture that's being fed by, by social media is definitely clearly affects one's developing self for sure. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned the military. That's a perfect kind of segue then. So you're in the psychology space. Walk me through how you entered the Navy. Yeah. So uh, I eventually uh, had some options, but I chose a first a, a PhD program that was uh, both research and and kind of practically based, you know, clinician, a, a traditional kind of research clinician program. Um, I, there are programs out there that, that can help People earn PhDs to do world-class research, but I really wanted the hand. I wanted to have a fundamentally sound research background, but focus also on on the clinical side, meaning the, the human side as well. So I ended up down here in San Diego, got into a PhD program, um, and within that PhD program, it, it's great, a fantastic program. But at the end of all PhD programs, not unlike medicine, you have to do in medicine, they call it a residency and psychology, call it an internship. So you have to do an internship that's outside of the institution. So uh, in order to kind of complete your PhD. Um, so one of my professors uh, pulled me aside and I was applying to traditional APA, American Psychological Association uh, internships uh, all over the country. And, and one of my professors said, have you thought about the military? And I thought, Actually, no, I hadn't. 
uh, tell me more. And he, he actually was from, he'd done a years prior, a, a military internship. And so I ended up going to an open house, long story short, for both the Air Force and the Navy. And frankly, James, I was, and I hate to say it this way, I was literally blown away um, and really surprised. I did, I probably went to the open houses more to appease the professor to say, hey, at least I checked it out. I kicked the tires, took a look at it, but I was taken aback. I, I was blown away at, at how much they were training early, early clinicians and, and really their focus on a multimodal approach, assessment, selection, inpatient, outpatient, health psychology, operational psychology. And then you throw in things like, hey, you can get backseat qualified in F-18 and go up in jets. You can go on ships. You can get catapulted off carriers. Um, so long story short, uh, I won't bore you with the details. That really threw a wrench in the works to where I thought I was going to go, which was more the traditional academic programs. And my wife and I stayed up all night and we had options in our hands and we chose the Navy option. Um, and what that meant is a one-year, very robust, comprehensive internship with a three-year obligated payback in uniform. So I completed that internship here in San Diego. Uh, they send you to what was then called Officer Indoctrination School, OIS, to teach you how to be an officer very quickly, along with other physicians, lawyers, nurses, et cetera. Um, teach you, you know, military law, how to march, who to salute, all of that stuff for six weeks. And then bingo, show up at the internship. And then guess what? There's that three-year obligated payback. Uh, that payback was here in San Diego, uh, where I was a kind of very traditional Navy psychologist, really neck deep in clinical work, helping people who didn't feel well feel better, um, doing assessment selection, um, you know, fitness for duty evaluations, critical incident debriefing, uh, some operational work as well. And then my obligated service was about to end. Uh, to answer your question, I'll come full circle here. And the Pentagon the, the, in the Navy, they call them the detailers as well. They decide through big Navy, okay, this person's getting out, their obligated service is done, you can leave. Uh, and they made an offer. They said, hey, I know we know that you're about ready to finish your obligated service. How would you like to go to Southern Spain and be a department head at a hospital there? And I'd said, no, I'm not a gamey guy. I just said, hey, no, thank you. We had a, a one and a half or a one-year-old daughter at the time. Uh, my wife was working here in San Diego. It just didn't make sense to up, you know, uproot and move to Europe. Um, and that night, my wife and I, after I said no, thank you, it was very polite. My wife and I went to dinner together um, with our with our one year old. And my wife made the comment, you know, what are, what are we doing? <laughs> this is an opportunity to live in southern Spain. This is phenomenal. Um, are we sure about this? So we kind of kicked around over dinner and maybe a glass of wine, uh, maybe her taking a leave of absence from her then job. And so long story short, called back the detailer on Monday and said, hey, that job that you had available in Southern Spain, there's a chance we can pull this off, but we need to come back to San Diego if that's the case after Spain. Is that possible? So long story short, they made it possible and it ended up going, we ended up going to Spain at the Naval Hospital there for three and a half years, which by the way, ended up being the best three and a half years of our lives. Phenomenal time to have a preschool child uh, immerse ourselves in the culture of Spain, the language we lived out in town on purpose. And um, and then 
to answer you very directly, and then I'll shut up here for a moment. 9-11 happened during that time. So about halfway through that tour, 9-11 happened, and there was no way in hell I was going to resign my naval commission, my naval officer commission um, in the midst of that. So that's uh, that was a game changer. Uh, and then got me started kind of in the operational side more, survival, evasion, resistance, and escape seer school. And then my last 10 years as the psychologist for the Navy SEALs. So I ended up making a career out of it when I never thought I would. So, Well, let's talk about Spain for a second. My, my mother and my brother both moved to the Algarve, south of Portugal, and I've been to Seville. That's the only place I've been in, in Spain at the moment, but it was beautiful. So whereabouts did you find yourself? Yeah, we were. I was a department head at a naval hospital in Rota, Spain, which is about 45 minutes dead south of Sevilla, uh, Seville, as you say. Uh, and then it's across the bay from Cadiz, C-A-D-I-Z. There's a, a small, uh, there's a, uh, the status of forces agreement allows the United States to have a presence there. It's, it's a, also a Spanish naval base as well. It's one of the few places in the world for the U.S. that is, you know, both has an airfield and a naval port. So very strategically uh, a relevant place. Obviously, the mouth of the Mediterranean, all of that as well. So it was a, a, southern Spain was lovely. Andalusia was fantastic. So, and what about the nine eleven day for you? I mean, there's so many different stories, so many different perspectives. You're already in a military base. You're not too far from the Middle East at that point. What was your 9-11 experience and what did you kind of see, obviously not specifically operationally, but what was the overall culture shift after that attack? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm juxtaposing, I mean, literally for the audience, I can't, we had a young child at the time, we had uprooted, navigated some guilt about pulling your grandchild, you know, <laughs> the, the grandchild to the parents on both sides of our family, you know, as far away as Spain, but we were there, lived literally on the beach in a, I'm just kind of painting the picture. I'm working in a Naval hospital. The philosophy at the time pre nine 11 was, Hey, just get the work done and go travel. We're all, you know, we all took this job overseas and the commanding officer of the, the hospital was phenomenal. He's like, Hey, just make sure the work is done. Um, and I think we had traveled to about 19 countries, you know, during our vacation time there. And during the first one and a half years there, um, I mean, sunflowers, I would ride my bike to work. I'm just trying to answer the question, like how to juxtapose this with the nightmarish scenario that then happens. And um, then one afternoon I'm, you know, walking in the hospital. I see everyone huddled around televisions on the quarter deck near the main heart of the hospital. And I paused and I looked and I saw the sec, you know, the, 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 another plane hit. I'm like, oh my God, it, it was all, all in, it was surreal. It was slow motion. Um, and, and you know, after that initial shock, at that point, I think those of us in uniform knew it's like, okay, th this is <laughs> life here in Southern Spain and life in the military, life in the US in general is going to change markedly. Um, and I won't get into the details, but for the coming days and weeks afterwards, uh, obviously because of the way Rhoda was positioned as the base I just described, I mean, it was clear we were ramping up for what was going to be an extended engagement for sure. So um, finished my last year there uh, and then transitioned to survival, evasion, resistance and escape seer school where you teach um, for those audience members that don't know, this is uh, where we um, teach 
high risk of capture U.S. assets or U.S. uniform members, how to navigate survival, evasion, resistance, and escape, how to navigate captivity, how to procure water, how to do celestial navigation, all of that. So I was the, the head psychologist there for three years as we're training people how to go into harm's way and survive if if bad things happen. So I want to hit a few of the kind of uh, topics that I've got down here, and this is probably a good place to put them in. So firstly, the topic of stress inoculation. I know that SEER has a big stress element with it, you know, the, the food and water, the sleep deprivation, but this is a topic that's brought up sometimes in the fire service as well. And there's obviously a spectrum of ways that people are interpreting it from setting up nightmarish scenarios and putting through you know, people through hell and playing loud music and screaming sounds and all the other things all the way through to, you know, the converse, the Disney version of what are some of the the principles that you've used over these years to build stress inoculation that could maybe be applied by fire, police, EMS, et cetera? Yeah. So stress inoculation, I mean, if, if for the audience, uh, if you just think about I, the inoculation is a good word, right? Or think vaccinations and I'm not being political pro or con vaccine. That's not what I'm trying to do here. But back in the day when someone gets a vaccine, let's call it a flu vaccine. The idea is that you're getting a little bit of a bad thing in that the hopes that your body, when it's facing that real strain of flu or that real strain of whatever, that it has, it can, it can marshal a response to that immune response, et cetera. So the idea is to give a little bit of a bad thing in the hopes that when your body sees that it copes better. So now that's physical. If we think about mental and the stress inoculation, the ideal, the theoretical, you know, underpinnings are as if you can uh, expose the human being to what they're likely to see in a small amount of maybe bad, then they have a psychological response that copes better. So the, 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 the most, uh, the high end example of that would be survival evasion resistance would be boot camp, would be Navy SEAL training, obviously hell week. These are really high end things as well as obviously firefighter and, and police academy work as well. The idea is, can you expose incrementally the human being to things that they're going to expose and then teach them or be exposed to, and then teach them ways to navigate through that. There are parallels in business and sport as well, right? Um, there are a lot of great organizations out there. Liminal Collective is one, obviously, that that you, you can get these groups of experts together and bring businessmen or women or bring firefighters or cops off duty through as well, and they get exposed to these things. So the whole idea, I mean, it's it's not only theoretically sound, it's practically sound. Where people make a mistake is it's not just putting people through hell in hopes that they're going to navigate on their own. Ideally, you want to put people and expose people through things that they're likely to see with then sprinkling in ways that they can navigate and, and be successful in that. But there needs to be forced attention. There needs to be a little bit of, wow, this is real and this sucks, <laughs> Right. In order, in order for it to work properly. So, once in a while, someone suggests to me that we need to expose recruits to the horrors that we're going to see in some way, shape, or form. Whether it's a you know photo collage, or I mean, I don't know what the other ideas are. Is there any value to that kind of exposure when it comes to some of these professions? Boy, that's a great question. I would have to defer to, I mean, I, I, my mind goes to some bad places there, to be honest, where, you know, you could end up doing more harm than good. It, 
the key word that I think people forget is incremental as well. If you, if you do too much too soon, you're going to scare the hell out of people or really expose their brain to too much. Um, that said, the professions you're talking about, you know, obviously firefighting, obviously police, obviously military, these men and women are very different than most because they're running towards danger, right? Whereas most, most of humanity says, oh God, I'm out of here. Um, so it, there's not like a, um, it's not Disneyland, right? I mean, they're seeing the under underbelly of society. They're seeing death, destruction, all of these things. So it's, it's, I, I, if it's not going to be exposed with photos, like you're saying, it, it, it ought to be exposed with mentors that can help guide and, and be honest about these professions early on um, and what that means and, and how to, more importantly, <laughs> and that's, I think, where backgrounds like mine come in place, you know, how do we, how do we take evidence-based, research-based tools and techniques that we know can improve performance in high-impact, high-leverage, high-stress environments? If we, can, if we can teach people these tools early, then they at least have the tools to navigate through some of this or all of it versus, hey, you're on your own. Let Darwin take his toll. I mean, come on, that, that's crazy. Absolutely. Well, that, that's a good segue to something I wanted to ask you. Through pure blind luck of starting a podcast seven years ago, especially when I interviewed Jake Clark, who's the man behind Save a Warrior, I was enlightened to the fact that a lot of us that wear a uniform had a pretty significant traumatic early life. Now, what I've come to learn seven years later is that that can be a beautiful thing. This is this is my perspective. I, I, I urge you to correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it seems to me that a lot of us become good soldiers, firefighters, etc., because of the trauma in our past. However, the the element that seems to either set us up for success or maybe potential, you know, trauma later is whether that childhood trauma has been processed prior to putting on the uniform. So what is your perspective of the the amount of childhood trauma that you are seeing, if any, in the men and women that you've you know, had the opportunity to work with? And then talk to me about, you know, if unaddressed, what are the consequences? And if it addressed, you know, can that become a strength? Can that become resilience then? So I'm going to answer this in a in a multi pronged, multi faceted way, and I'm, I'm hope I I hope I don't sound like too much of a, a nerd or a geek here. But first off, let me just say I'm going to answer this carefully because I want to be clear as day for me. I in my answer am not I, I do I do not want to suggest that one has to come from a heinous background in order to be a high performer in fire, in police, in the, in the military. However, <laughs> let's talk about my 10 years with the SEALs, okay, as their psychologist, right? I was active duty. I'm not a SEAL, obviously. No way in hell I'm, I could ever be that good. But if BUDS, if the hardest level of training is the first adversity that that SEAL candidate has ever seen, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it's extremely improbable. And that's what the data was suggesting. I mean, it was, it was very, very clear. Now, where I need to be careful, and I mean no disrespect, I, when you say trauma, 
that's that's where you lose me a little bit. Instead, I'm going to say just hard things. I think that when you and you know we have I have four family members who are cops on my wife's side and my side. I have my dearest friends are firefighters, and we can get into that. We we talk about a few in the book as well. Um, I, I think that their trajectory, their lens, their identity, their development, their adolescence, they've just been exposed to a lot of either macro or micro failures and have learned ways to navigate those. Um, now, the underpinning, the the under or, or I guess overarching question that you're asking really gets me excited because there's a lot of work on kind of post-traumatic growth, even though I'm moving away from the word trauma. But I, you know, I had a mentor once that said there are really three types of people. You know, we can boil down psychology into three types of people in the world. There are those who are victims, there are those who are survivors, and those who are thrivers. So whatever that difficulty is, and notice I'm not using the word trauma, because for a lot of people, it might be like I missed a penalty kick as a nine-year-old when everyone was watching me. We could have won a championship for nine-year-olds. And that can be traumatic for the individual. And I'm holding up hand quote, you know, finger quotes here, or it can just be adversity. Now, is that person going to say, I'm a victim? It was the ball's fault. It was the wind's fault. It was the referee's fault. Or are they going to say, hey, I survived something pretty bad in my mind, and I'm going to manifest that. I'm going to make sure that I am okay with that. Or ideally, how is a person going to thrive through that adversity? So when you're someone like me, who's a clinical and performance psychologist, I want to move people away from the victim mentality to either the survivor or, or thriver. Um, and I know I'm going way deep into your question here. My answer is yes. I do believe you're asking me as a person and me as a professional, what I've seen through 30 years, roughly 25,000 touch points with some of the best performers on earth, some of which are in first responding community, some of which are obviously in the military. I think that those individuals did not show up, hence the book, and I hate to bring in the book, but I firmly believe we chose the title on purpose, Learned Excellence. These people have become really good at what they do through a life of navigating adversities, micro and macro adversities, whether those are on in this in the classroom, whether in the boardroom, whether you know on on the battlefield. So let me pause there. No, well, firstly, I mean that's that's a beautiful answer, and I agree with you. I mean, the problem is we get stuck in labels sometimes, and I I think what's missing from certainly in the first responder community, and I'd be interested to see if it's the military as well, but we kind of got hung up on okay, we smashed the stigma, like okay, well great. Now you accept that it's a thing. What's next? And I think what's missing is the hope that is from post-traumatic growth. And with a lot of the people have come on the show, a lot of them have had this amazing growth, you know, after whenever it was. And some of them, you know, had horrendous things happen. I mean, parents murdered and, you know, growing up around addiction and sexual abuse and all these other things. So pretty significant difficulties to have to overcome. But then they found ayahuasca or horse, you know, equine therapy or whatever their kind of perfect storm of beautiful healing modalities was. And now they're a better person. I think this is such an important conversation because I've talked about this several times on the show. I never really struggled 
deeply like some of my brothers and sisters in uniform have. I've never had a gun in my mouth. I've never been dragged into the world of addiction. And I'm just a normal human being. There's nothing special about me at all. But I grew up on a farm in England. I grew up around horses. My dad was a healer. He was a veterinary surgeon. We had people from all walks of life come through the farm. you know. So I had daylight. I had nature. I had all the things that we identify now. So by chance, and I was one of five kids, so by chance, I was given this accidental environment to continuously process the fact that I almost died in a house fire when I was four, and my parents had a horrible divorce, and it was another near-death moment. So there were things. There were definitely things, but it was like... Equally and opposite, there was the, these healing elements. So it allowed me to function as a firefighter, have my highs, have my absolute lows, my divorce, you know, for example, but never go down to that deep pit that a lot of our men and women find ourselves. And I think that when, when you reframe this as the other side of this PTSD, PTS, whatever you want to call it, the other side of, you know, this struggle that you're going through is not just oh, you'll be all right, but you are going to be a stronger, more resilient version of yourself. To me, that's the next step in the mental health conversation. I totally agree. I mean, we could, I, maybe we're going to go there anyhow, but I mean, I, I for the past probably 12 years, uh, even during some of my active duty time, I've been out of the Navy. I retired in 2016. And and you can see in the book as well, we we interview uh, the the former police um captain for, uh, I'm sorry, the former police chief for, for Reno. There's a firefighter from Philly in there as well. And I, I've spoken to a lot of these departments and agencies over the years and, and PTSD always comes up. And my response is the same, not to sound like a bumper sticker or cliche, but I mean, I think the, the PTSD symptoms are normal reactions to abnormal events. I want to say that again, these symptoms are normal reactions to abnormal events the old uh, the old pieces of industry, whether it's fire, police, military, there was a stigma, right? And, and I think that is slowly moving in absolutely the right direction. We can talk about all the things that have been done to help with that. But at the end of the day, I think what you're alluding to, James, is, you know, you bring up your farm example. That's a great example of those quote unquote muscles for outlets, whether it's light, whether it's equine, whether it's just exercise, whether it's sleep, those muscles were were reinforced almost unintentionally, right? I mean, you just had that, I call it that ecosystem. So I think what ideally what you want people to understand is we can, I call this evidence-based, we can look at evidence-based things and sprinkle that into the infrastructure of fire academies, police academies, military boot camps, all of that, and continue with continuing education, just like we do with strength and conditioning, just like we do with nutrition, just like we do with, you know, whatever. So I'm excited because I, look, does PTSD exist? Of course, I'm a clinician. I don't want to lose my license, but there's a lot of this boogeyman uh, narrative out there that it's like, no, we, we can deal with it. And there's a reason it happened. I mean, we, we're, we're, I think we're starting to understand a heck of a lot more about it now than we have, say, for example, 10 years ago. Um, but it's not a showstopper. It's, it can be an absolute, I think, way to vector and, and um, thrive as a result. So, I want to put uh, an idea to you that kind of hit me. I don't know. It's probably been a couple of years now. But because I had a kind of gypsy 
experience as a firefighter. I started in the Miami area, went to California for a few years, worked for Anaheim, and then spent the last 10 in the Orlando area for two other departments. I had to go through all those new hire processes. And three of the four, I had to do a polygraph. And I've said this, I had to lie through a polygraph because I learned very early on that if I told the truth about things that I'd done, that I was immediately dismissed from the process. So this facade of wanting choir boys to be soldiers and firefighters is another whole separate conversation. But the other thing was the psychological test was the um, MMPI, so the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Interview. Have I got that right? Inventory. Yeah. It's Inventory. The- thank yeah. you. Um, and it's a standalone test. So that's the only one that you do. You know, thousands of questions. You know, do you like flowers? Do you like badgers? Do you like touching kids? Do you like going on holiday? And you're like, what? Um, and as I talk to people in your space now, I'm discovering, I mean, I know for a fact that the polygraph is bullshit because I lied my way through three of them. And then you, you know, it's smoke and mirrors getting you to admit to something. And that's not me bragging. It's just, it was the only way I was going to put a uniform on is to be dishonest in a profession I was staunchly honest the rest of my life. But the MMPI you learn doesn't have any value to truly discern if someone is going to be a good first responder on its own. So with that knowledge, these departments are spending arguably thousands on those two combined. And then obviously time with the psychologist based on those results. What is your perception of if they took that money, knowing that many of these people have these unaddressed traumas, difficulties that they're bringing into the profession, that you instead use that for just making up a number of five or six counseling sessions through their first year so they have an opportunity to start discussing some of the things that maybe were bothering them before. They've normalized the mental health conversation and you've removed to the barrier to entry because now they have a go-to counselor from day one. I think it's a reasonable idea. I mean, I, you know, we assessment and selection, the ANS piece that you're talking about. I mean, MMPI is, is merely one of, you know, dozens of tools out there that are, that are valid, they're reliable, but it depends on how it's, it's like, <laughs> I'm trying to equate this as kind of a different a different analogy, like a tool. Like, can I use a hammer to break a window? Can I use a hammer to break rocks? Can I use a hammer to hammer a nail? I mean, a tool's a tool, right? So I, there, there's a time and place for assessments. I, I don't, I'm not opposed to what you're saying at all. I'm going to go down a different rabbit hole. Assessments are generally used for one of two reasons, either to rule someone out or rule someone in. Now, it depends, and I, I would be a fool to say that the fire agencies and the police agencies, I don't know until I sit down with that person who is that gatekeeper and how they're interpreting that. But I like the idea a lot of, of resourcing from the neck up and between the ears some of the evidence-based things that become culturally part of a program. Um, I'm, a, I'm obviously a big fan of that. So I think there's a time and place for assessment. I'm not opposed to that. I'm, I'm a big fan of assessments in general, but there's a caveat. It depends what answer or what question you're trying to have answered. So, yeah. So the way I would look at it was your selection process would be the background check, the written test, the physical test that we all go through. So now, you know, am I fit enough? Am I smart enough? And am I, you know, good enough of a person that haven't been doing some of the really horrendous stuff that, that allows me then to be a good firefighter? 
And the MMPI seems like it's a kind of box checking thing. So God forbid James goes crazy and like, well, we tested him. It's not our problem is kind of how I'm receiving it from both sides, from the people in uniform and the people that have been part of the psychological side. That being said, what would be, how would you advise the first responder professions if up to this point, they've just been doing the MMPI is there a better gamut of tests that actually would allow them to predict if someone was going to be a good first responder or not? So it depends. How do I say this? It depends on the question that's being asked. You just, you, you, I think you asked it at the end, if someone's going to be a good first responder or not. Generally speaking, I'm going to generalize here, okay? I'm going to, I'm going to caveat with a huge red line. I'm generalizing, but generally speaking, assessments are really good at they're better at predicting failure than they are success. Let's just leave it at that. I mean, they can identify people who have a low likelihood. We found this with with the Navy SEALs as well. The first job I had during my 10 years with them was three years at BUDS where SEALs are are made or that that threshold of, of having them go through Hell Week, et cetera. And we found that we developed a computerized special operations resiliency test and what that assessment was really good at doing was predicting with incredibly good accuracy who was going to have a difficult time making it through when you married those resiliency traits on top of performance traits. So a combination of the two. So in other words, the people who are likely not going to have a return on the investment of training, as it were. I know that sounds awful, but um, that's the way to look at that. What you're saying, I think is, is there a way to look at traits? One of the words that I don't like, James, is I don't like the term weakness. I much prefer the term area for growth. If we're gonna give an assessment, let's identify some personality strengths that this person has. And moreover, let's identify some areas for growth. And then ultimately, how do we strengthen those muscles to make them a better whatever? Baseball, football, firefighter, businessman or woman, surgeon, I don't care. Um, So instead, I'm a bigger fan of not using assessments to rule people out, but instead as a snapshot to, hey, this is your nutritional profile, right? If we take a blood work and we say, hey, James, you need more vitamin B12, you need to eat more celery, you need blah, blah, blah. That doesn't mean you're weak. It just means this is a path for you to perform better. Um, This is a model that seems to work beautifully in sport. And I'm not trying to make that transition, but when I left, when I retired from the military, obviously I took a, a, a job in the front office of the Dodgers and we were going to move over the assessment selection and more importantly, the development and enhancement programs that we perfected in the military to now how do we identify and build a better baseball player? So if you're thinking about this, and again, a, a long-winded answer to your question If you're thinking about this for the fire and police communities, let's identify a better way to build, not identify weakness and say, no, you can't, but instead let's identify a profiling system. And maybe that's the wrong word. That's, you know, going to get me canceled if I say profile, but a profiling system on how do we identify the areas where James can grow and then give give him an evidence-based framework, readings, podcasts, um, 
uh, a framework of PowerPoints and whatnot. It doesn't matter. I'm ag- we can get into the details. I'm agnostic to what those look like, but how are you going to strengthen those resiliency muscles? Because I think we kind of know that firefighters and police officers are going, <laughs> they're going to see some pretty hard things and we need to strengthen those muscles. So. See, I love that. And I, I agree with that completely because when I, I just was part of a study in November and it was um, IHMC. I don't know if you ever came across them, but they work with the SEALs and NASA and DARPA and all the, all the agencies and high performers. Um, and that was kind of put up how, cause we, there was a local businessman that put money up because we'd lost several first responders in my county where I live to suicide. And the conversation got to, well, how can we weed out the people that are going to kill themselves? Basically is what the conversation was. And I'm thinking while I'm, you know, biting my tongue, um, or how do we help those people grow? How do we, you know, help them as we talked about the post-traumatic growth? Because I would argue that storied childhood is an absolute superpower for a first responder, for a soldier. And again, like you said, it doesn't have to be, but if you have it, the empathy, the resilience that you develop overcoming things can become an incredible strength if you are given the tools to actually grow from it. So and this is I, precisely, I, I mean, I'm smiling. This is precisely, and I hate to, and I'm going to say this, this is precisely, so keep in mind, I did 20 years in the military, thousands of elite performers. My last four years, three years there, I started really working closely and dearly with both fire and police agencies. And we can get into the details as to who and when and why. Some of that is in the book. Probably because one of my dearest friends in the world was a sheriff's deputy. And I'll come back to your thing, but I want to say this. And one of the things I noticed as we raised our kids together, literally lives right down the street from us. Um, As we raised our kids together, I was active duty in the military and seen you know, our, our men, and by the way, and women who were doing incredibly heroic and difficult things during deployments, et cetera, and seeing the toll that was taking. But then they would come back and we would, we would have programs in play. And for the most part, and again, for the most part, I believed in the programs that we had created for Naval Special Warfare and the SEAL community and all of the support staff, et cetera. But then I would juxtapose that with being on a t-ball or soccer field with one of my dear friends who, again, we raised our kids together, who happens to be a sheriff's deputy or happened to be, he's retired now. And I was blown away, James. I was literally, this is how naive I was, even though I was working in police agencies. And then I was blown away at how he was always deployed. And here are my quotes, my finger quotes. Unlike the SEALs, and again, they do incredible work and the most impactful valuable work, I think, that the world will ever know, or maybe not know. Um, Short of that, though, when they come back, they can decompress for a while and get on training cycles for the next 18 months before they deploy for another six. And it dawned on me that these policemen and women, these firefighters, they're they're deployed always. And we don't even need to get into the human stress response and the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal cortex and adrenal burnout. But I was I was appalled and floored um, at that. So now, how do we come full circle? So I spent again thirty years of my career, roughly twenty five thousand touch points with all of these men and women. And for me, before I call it quits and I retire and I'm done and I just want to sail somewhere and sit on a beach with my lovely wife, 
this was the genesis behind the book. And, and the reason I'm bringing this up isn't to talk about the book. It was, I wanted a, a reference to what I believe a framework that could be applied to anyone in high stress, high performance situations. And it really focuses on identity, focuses on mindset, really unpacks adversity, tolerance, tactics, balance, recovery to really strengthen these muscles that we're talking about. Hey, if you are going to be a high-end performer, run away from the narrative of he or she was born that way. It's complete nonsense. It is how and what they've learned along the way that make them good at what they do. But the where the vacuum was is there's very little that I saw that I was satisfied with like, hey, this is a good, not a be all end all, but a very good reference to how we can strengthen some of these above the neck and between the ears muscles starting with identity, reputation, mindset, all of that. So, sorry. No, don't say sorry. That was beautiful. And, and this is the thing. I mean, I've had so many people from the special operation, operations community talk about how much they admire the first responders. Now, firstly, a lot of us forget that they're our heroes, yet when they're deployed, who's protecting their families? We exactly. are. We're, exactly. we're the ones. But secondly, they've made that observation over and over and over again. When I go back to the UK, Australia, America, wherever they're from, there's no reminders of what we did really. You know, it's a completely different topography, a completely different community that, I'm, that we're in. But most first responders, especially the volunteer firefighters, they live and work. They run on their friends, you know, when it's 911. You know, it could be their, their local farm burning, you know, whatever it is. And for a lot of us, if I drive through Anaheim, if I drive through Orlando, certain corners i still see the faces of the people you know and they don't have that so another area i also want to put in that i don't think the average person understands is the immense sleep deprivation that our first responders encounter as well so i'm gonna gonna open another entire rabbit hole now i had dr uh kurt parsley on i don't know if you you cross paths he's a, kurt, he's a very dear friend we worked together for three years actually four years with the seals I'm very i mean I we talk probably once every week. I mean, he's amazing. Yeah. I literally credit him with the inception of this podcast because I heard him on Barbell Shrugged years ago. And I was just driving to work, you know, sleep deprived as always. <laughs> just why are we not talking about this? How how can I? I've been an athlete, I'm an ex-phys major. How do I not know about sleep deprivation? This is this is crazy. So Kirk was, I think, episode six of this podcast, and he's been on three three other times since. But when I started listening to the impact of sleep deprivation acutely on performance and then um, chronically on disease, it was everything that we experience. And a lot of the, what we call the line of duty deaths that are actually in fires, in traffic accidents, I'm, I'm starting to question how many of those were sleep deprivation. And then the cancers, the suicides, the addictions, I mean, all the things globally in the human body, you start realizing that sleep deprivation is a huge element too. So massive subject, but I'd love to open the door of you know performance and then obviously the parallel conversation of actual health. So first off, I'm always going to defer. I mean, Kirk is literally a world expert. There are some incredible, I mean, Peter, Peter Atia as well. I mean, some of these men and women out there are, are way more at the cutting edge than I am. But I'm I'm an all-in believer. I'll push the all believe I believe button all day long on on the power of sleep. Um, you know, the the World Health Organization years ago called shift work a carcinogen. And that's a fancy word for a cancer causer. <laughs> so, I mean, when you talk, and, and now I, I'm dumb, but I'm not stupid. I often say that. Like shift, or we, 
we can't just eliminate shift work, right? But we can really think about how we're titrating that and how we're shifting the shift work, et cetera, et cetera, shifting the shifts of the shift workers, et cetera. So um, it all starts and ends with sleep. I think it's the one, someone asked me a year ago on, on a different interview, like what's the most important thing? I think sleep is the most important rejuvenative phase and thing that the human being experiences. And when we start to mess with that, man, oh man. And then you start to talk about things like alcohol, caffeine, and how they have, they chip away at normal sleep cycles as well. So it's a, again, it's a, I hate to use this word again, but it's a multifaceted issue. Um, I think that most, and watch this, we want, want to see me get canceled in hate mail. Most things can be I think solved pretty well if the human being eats well, hydrates, has social connections, exercises, and gets sleep. We are built in such a way that we can recover from a lot of things if we just focus on those five. And sleep is that fifth one. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, we could talk about sleep literally all day long. That's it's so important, and it is built into. I mean, we we built in very specific programs that I'm sure Kirk talked about within the SEALs when I was their psychologist. Kirk, Kirk and I worked hand in hand. He was the physician. I was a psychologist. And we were building those programs for how SEALs were redeploying and circadian rhythms and shifting circadian rhythms. Um, and then when I transitioned to professional sport, again, I want to talk about first responders today because that's your audience. But most of the athletes that we watch on television, a lot of those athletes play mostly in the evenings or at night, right? And then they finish their game, their adrenaline's high, they eat, they work out, they go back to their family. So their circadian rhythms are messed up as well. Not to mention, they then travel all over the United States to play in the stadiums or fields of their choice, different time zones, different circadian shifts, et cetera. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big, big issue for sure. So what I think the difference is between a lot of the you know, the special operations groups I've spoken to and police fire is they have Kirk Parsley's. So for example, Kirk talks about doing the blood work, you know, and seeing, you know, these these uber tactical athletes with blood work of an eighty year old woman, and he's scratching his head, and then a year later he figures out the the Ambien <laughs> epidemic is happening in, in his his men in that particular example, and then as you said, switching lifestyle elements and training times and those kind of things and that alone getting them off ambien and now their blood work returns to how it should be the american fire service of a hundred years ago did sit around fire stations smoking cigars playing cards and waiting for a fire the american fire service of 2024 most urban and suburban departments are running pretty much 24 hours straight. Now, there might be periods of short sleep, obviously very poor quality sleep because you're waiting to have the shit scared out of you by the next alarm. But they are working, when you average it out, 24-hour shift with a 48-hour period and then 24 hours for 10, 20, 30 years of their life. What's happening now on top of the massive hiring crisis, because I think people are realizing how detrimental it is in this internet age. As you said, when we were young, you couldn't Google what are the health effects to a firefighter? Now you can. But they are just absolutely bleeding money on overtime, filling these holes, you know, workman's comp claims, medical retirements, line of duty deaths, lawsuits from mistakes we make because we're so tired. And so it's a complete knee-jerk reactive element. And what I'm trying to get 
you know, our profession to understand is that if you put more rest and recovery between shifts, so an extra 24-hour period, which should bring it to a 42-hour work week, which everyone else works anyway, we would then, I think, hugely impact the mental health crisis, the obesity, the, you know, the testosterone issues, all the things that we're seeing, because it mirrors what Kirk was seeing, you know, with his own eyes, with you, you know, whatever it was, 17 years ago. Yeah. So, and again, I'm, I'm an always, uh, I'll always pay homage and defer to those experts in, in, you know, psychophysiology, et cetera. But if we just talk about the human stress response for a minute, I'm going to bring it back to what you just said. And I wish I had a chart where your audience could see as well, but I'll, well, hopefully I'll, I'll verbally explain this. The human stress response, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal cortex, the, we call that the HPA axis, okay? So the HPA axis, when a stressor happens, whether it's a, a fire alarm, whether it's a grizzly bear, whether it's a strikeout, whether it's a, a screaming person, road rage, whatever that is, the dominoes start to fall and certain things happen. So you interpret that and then all of a sudden cortisol, adrenaline, glucocorticoids get pumped into the bloodstream. Then a cascade of things happen. There's a physiological response to stress, which is vasoconstriction, increased heart rate, blood migration away from the extremities towards the center of the body to protect the human organs. Digestion starts to slow down because the body basically does a hierarchical, okay, I don't need to digest that hamburger right now. I need to get out of the way of the grizzly bear or the fire, whatever it may be. Gunfight, whatever it may be. The cognitive effects are also equally as powerful, right? It affects the executive functions of the brain. So those are those higher end functions that allow us to think abstractly, problem solve, if then thinking, think critically. Um, so those go, pardon, pardon, you know, to hell in a handbasket, pardon my French. So when we think about that human stress response of an influx of adrenaline and cortisol into the blood, and, and my finger's kind of moving up this chart. Imagine a chart where all of a sudden you have this huge pop up of these chemicals that we know affect physiology and we know affect psychology and cognitive functions. If we take the human being out of the stressor, we again have adapted over time through nutrition, through hydration, through connection, through exercise, and here we go again, sleep, to start to metabolize that stress response. So that peak, that immediate influx starts to be metabolized in the human being, and they come back down to whatever their baseline normal functioning was. Here's the problem. And this ties beautifully into what you just said. And it's what we saw in Naval Special Warfare with our operators as well. And Kirk, I'm sure, probably spoke of, of this already. When we have that influx of a, our guys who are deployed, they go out and they do incredible missions literally every night. So you have this pop of cortisol, <laughs> pop of adrenaline, which we know affects physiology and psychology. And then it starts to metabolize as they come back and they try to sleep during the day because they're working at night. Okay, we haven't even talked about the circadian shift. And then before it formally metabolizes and they get back down to a baseline level, boom, it pops up again because they're redeployed with another stressor. Now let's make it in your world, firefighting or police officers, policemen and women. You have a fire, you see horrible things, death, destruction, and then you get back and it's metabolizing if you do those five things I talked about. I'm not simplifying it, but I'm trying to like those five core elements. If we focus on those, 
we can recover from most things beautifully. Okay. Boom. Cortisol spike. Boom. Boom. So what we start to see is the baseline or what we, the experts will call adrenal burnout. And I started to see what we called, I think someone just wrote a book on an operator syndrome or what I like to call in the police work and the police agencies I work with blue drift. We start to see incrementally things like a, a cumulative subtle change in personality, right? Because they, they get irritable and they're not getting the proper sleep, emotionally numb, cynicism, sarcasm, dark humor, um, pessimism, just in the psychology part, because they haven't been allowed time, they haven't been afforded time to let the body repair and let the mind repair itself. And I know that sounds simplistic, but it's really powerful. It makes sense, right? Back to cavemen and women, right? If you see a T-Rex or you see a grizzly bear, and, you, and you're lucky enough to survive that heinous trauma back to the very first part of this podcast, then you go back to the cave and you rest, you recover, you tell stories about that, you unpack that, you get it off your chest. Wow, you survived. There's a community you can educate others about what to do if we ever see that T-Rex again. But if every time you go out to forage for food, you see a T-Rex and you're not afforded the ability to recover you're going to see a markedly different caveman or cavewoman. So anyhow, yeah. No, that's that's absolutely beautiful. And I'm actually, you said um, adrenal burnout. I want to put something to you, and it's funny because I think I told Ted, because we were on 7X, I've skydived twice in my life. Um, absolutely terrified before the first time. I will put my hand on my heart. I went to McDonald's and went into the bathroom and God help the people that clean that bathroom after, but I was really <laughs> scared. <laughs> and then ended up flinging myself while being attached to a dude. He flung us out of the airplane in New Zealand. And by the time I landed, I was ready to become an instructor. It was so much fun. So it was that fear of the unknown. But I remember the immense fear, the immense adrenal response I had that time. Now, fast forward literally about 20 years later now we're in um cairo and they told us oh, we're going to get a free free skydive the difference was when we jumped out of the plane the plane was doing 100 and whatever miles an hour so it wasn't a drop it was a glide yeah. well this time they're like oh by the way you're jumping out of a russian helicopter so i'm like well this is going to be really interesting because i feel like my adrenal glands are just spent. Now, you know, of course, physiologically, there's still an element, but I really feel like they're diminished. What a great way to test it. I know how scared I was the first time I did a skydive. Now we're going to plummet <laughs> from this helicopter. And to, it was funny to add an insult to injury. My instructor forgot my glasses, so I had to raw dog it all the way down as well. But the moment we dropped and I'm expecting this big adrenal spike, there was nothing. I mean, the same as we're sitting here now. It was bizarre. So I've had people poo-poo kind of adrenal fatigue, adrenal burnout. Um, to me, what I experienced, there's no real other explanation. I lived in a high stress level for 14 years in uniform and, you know, and obviously the shift work as well. But what are you seeing as far as it? Is it, is it actual, you know, almost like an exogenous TRT element, whereas a diminished physiological response? Or what are the kind of underlying elements to adrenal I'll burnout? I'll defer to the, you know, the PhD physiologist or, you know, uh, you know some, of the, some of the physicians as well. I, look, the, the data is clear. Like as an interpreter of data, as a, as a guy who can read research, I mean, anyone who's poo-pooing the, the, the 
the fact that adrenal burnout doesn't exist. I mean, uh, these might be a hop, skip and a jump away from flat earthers as well. I mean, I, you're not going to convince, I mean, I'll just leave it at that. So <laughs> I will say we can make this tactically relevant. If we talk about firefighters and police and military or athletes or businessmen and women, and the reason this becomes tactically relevant is look at it this way. One of the physiological effects of a stress response. So whether it's road rage, whether it's a spousal argument, whether it's striking out with bases loaded, I don't care what the, how you define stress, but when stress happens, okay, we know the, I go back to this, the physiological response, vasoconstriction, increased heart rate, rapid shallow breath. But here's a tactically relevant thing that if I'm a leader in fire and I'm a leader in police and I'm a leader in military, this one, I go, oh, okay, now I can make this relevant to my operators, the people who are fighting fires for a living. And one of the things that happens during the human stress response is called blood migration. So because vasoconstriction happens, the veins are are constricting, it's forcing blood towards the core of the body from the periphery. So blood is moving from my hands and arms and my legs to the core, towards the core element of the body. The reason it's doing that is it's protecting, it's protective, right? It's, it's basically saying, okay, back to the grizzly bear, I can lose an arm or a leg, but I'm going to keep the vital organs supplied with blood so that we, we keep the organism alive. Why am I talking about this? Because tactically speaking, if we go back to the SEALs or people that shoot for a living, <laughs> right? I need them to have fine motor control. They need to learn ways to control the human stress response because blood needs to be in their weapons, which are their hands and their fingers to pull the trigger and in their executive frontal lobe of their brain to make critical decisions. Shoot, no shoot. Now, if we make this about fire or police, it doesn't take you long to figure out that as a firefighter, I need the firefighter, I assume, I'm not, I don't want to offend because I'm not a firefighter, but I assume I need he or she to have absolute vascularization in the hands and legs and arms as well as the brain. So to me, pardon the pun, if you're not teaching techniques and you don't believe in techniques that are evidence-based to teach your firefighters to perform, then literally you're robbing of a tactic, you're robbing them of a tactical advantage to not only control the longevity of their health, but actually to put out the fires. I mean, that's let's just make this simple. I need the blood in the hands, arms, and legs and brains of the people that do this work for a living. So yeah. And so the adrenal fatigue basically comes from us constantly sub or should I say subconsciously dampening our stress response so we're able to function at a higher level. And or I agree, yes, and or the 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 adrenal cortex can only pump out so much because it's not being allowed the time afforded. I shouldn't say allowed. It's not being afforded the time to recover with those big five. Proper nutrition, hydration, connection, exercise, and most importantly, sleep. The body will heal with proper sleep. Most things. Beautiful. All right. Well, another area we talked about, um, you know, the, the the mental health conversations and stigma. One kind of aha moment I had a few years ago was if you have a little resistance, you can come from a different 
approach and still basically affect the same outcome. And the person who spawned that for me, um, uh, Logan Gelbrick, who is was a major league baseball player, and he was talking about one of his you know flow state moments. And he underlined to have to get in the flow state. And again, please, I, this was years ago. I'm probably butchering this, but he was saying you had to have, you know, the practice, the, the tens of thousands of reps. You had to have stress, but you had to have a clear mind. And it really resonated with me because say you've got the person who poo-poos the mental health conversation. Well, let's talk about the firefighter as far as performance or the paramedic or the SEAL. All right. Well, you don't believe PTSD or, you know, stress or, as you said, overcoming difficulties is a real thing. But meditation, you know, whatever the the therapies are, are also going to allow you to perform at a higher level. So talk to me about mindfulness and some of these other practices with the elite performance that you've worked with, even if we're not talking about overcoming, you know, challenges or a busy mind from a mental health perspective. Talk to me about the flow state or the pursuit of flow state and a high performer instead. Yeah, so flow, I'm just going to put it out there. This is a controversial term. Um, I, I tend to be a little bit on the fence here research-wise and from what I've seen. I'm leaning towards flow, let's put it that way, but I still am on the fence. Um, Stephen Kotler talks about this. Other researchers talk about this as well. I, I, I guess maybe it's a, a semantics issue here. I, 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 I'm more comfortable with complete presence um, than I am this term flow because some of the flow stuff that I've seen is just, it, <laughs> it's a little bit spooky, uh, to be honest. But I, but I do like where I think mindfulness, we, we did one controlled study in a peer reviewed journal with mindfulness in, in Marines as well. Mindfulness, it, it absolutely works. I mean, it's clear. Yoga works. Um, the reason a lot of these practices work is because it forces presence. Um, you know, there's a lot of good meta analyses and studies out there to suggest that most high performers are you know, 60% of our thoughts are roughly in the future. So we're very future-based and that's why we're successful to begin with, right? We have deadlines, we have routines, we're forward-looking, we can see danger before it affects us. So I, I don't like to tell people to not think about the future, but where focus or flow I think happens is becoming fully pr as fully present as you can in the moment or the experience that you're experiencing. And I think that's why mindfulness is so powerful and so addicting to a lot of people as a technique uh, that helps kind of catalyze the mindset of whatever they're doing in that moment. So I'm a big fan in general. Yeah. Yeah. Th that seems to be the way you sell it to to some of the other people is just simply performance. Okay. You know, if, if you want to be at the higher level, like you said, whether that's called flow state or presence is exactly that, like, you know, not being distracted by everything else when you're myopic on that thing that you've got to do, that you need a calm mind. And so if you have unaddressed trauma, struggles, whatever, you know, label you want to put on it, that is going to be detrimental to your performance as a police officer. Maybe that's what makes you make the bad decision for the teenager reaching for his license and you think he's reaching for a gun. So I think this is a really important conversation, not only from the mental health perspective, but the performance as well. And again, you add in sleep deprivation. Now you're kind of, you know, swimming upstream in the first place. I agree. We, we talk about this in the book. We have a, a couple chapters, but one in particular really dedicated to um, talking about how we, sh how, how we catalyze different mindsets for every role that we play. And if you think about fire, police, I mean, a lot of these men and women obviously are partners. They're ch they have children, they're neighbors, they're church members as well. So 
where I think the word I really like here is, is if we can use pre and post performance routines to help kickstart and, and catalyze a mindset that forces presence, that's why routines exist. That's why these pre-performance routines, if you're a baseball player, you have a walk-up song. Am I saying that each firefighter or each police officer, policeman or women need a, a walk-up song? Not necessarily, but they do, they ought to, I shouldn't say need, they ought to think about a very structured pre-performance routine for okay. And we have a firefighter who talks about one of these in the book, actually. He's a, he's a volunteer firefighter out, just outside of Philly in a small town uh, called Narberth on David Wurzel. And a brilliant example of how these performance routines helped kind of kickstart. And here it is, force presence. If you, if you have a certain routine, it's going to force you to be more present. And I think it actually comes close to kickstarting what, what you might or others might refer to as a flow state as well. So, Have you ever come across the technology Newcom? I have not. What is oh, that? Oh, my goodness. It's, it's funny. There's several things, foundation training, which we talked about before we hit record, um, amazing for back health. But Newcom, it was involved somewhere. I don't know if it was DevGrew, but it was their, their technology was somewhere. But they basically have um, neuroacoustic, and it's not, not the beats even. It's it, the, the foundation is almost 30 years ago. There was an incredibly intelligent um, scientist who we had in the U.S. who passed away just a few years ago. But he identified the frequencies that the brain was at at certain stress levels. And then I think that took him 15 plus years. And then he figured out how to actually manipulate the brain through earphones um, to get, you know, to upregulate or downregulate. And again, you know, there's, there's so much out there, you know, okay, it's another wow. snake oil thing. I can tell you hands down, I am, I am hugely skeptical um, of many, many things, but it's not only helped me, my wife uses it, my son uses the sleep version every night. My mom uses it and just said that her Portuguese housekeeper was literally doing it when I called her because she's wow. having anxiety. Okay. But the reason I bring this up, it's so hard to punctuate, just as you, as you mentioned, a police officer, a paramedic, a dispatcher, a firefighter, the end of their shift with high stress and God knows what we've seen and done to walking through the door as mom, dad, you know, whatever relationship you have. And the new calm has a 20 minute, um, they call a power nap where you literally throw on a sleep mask. You could be in your car, in the bunk room of a fire station, wherever, take 20 minutes. And it, I mean, it genuinely down regulates everything and i think it's such a beautiful way of punctuating between work and then going home again i like it i i just wrote down notes as you're talking i'll definitely look it up one of the things that we talk about in addition to i mean this is a perhaps you know i'll, I'll kick the tires and i'll look at it more one of the things we talk about a very simple hack if you will is to have the member really document the top four to six roles that they play so I'm going to pretend, you know, I'm Eric, the firefighter. I'm Eric, the husband. I'm Eric, the, the father. And really identify, keep it simple, three words that you think you need to perform optimally in the mindset of that role. So as a firefighter, I need these, I need to really focus on these three words for a, the optimal mindset for performance. As a father, these are the three words. As a husband, these are the three words. And to really, the hack, it, it, it's really powerful. As There's a, a chief marketing executive in, in the book that we interviewed that talks about how this changed her life. And it was just a simple mantra. As she was moving from her marketing job in New York 
literally at the end of the day to be a mom and to be a wife, usually, I mean, simply using and repeating three words in her mind forced her to say, okay, now I'm going to focus on the mindset I need to perform ideally performance-wise as a mother. And that helps. So maybe that coupled with Newcom or whatever is a way to, the whole point is there's how do we catalyze a mindset for the role that we're going to play now, which by the way, forces presence. So when you were talking to um, Ryan on the podcast and you, you were obviously really diving deeply into the book, what I loved was you touched on identity and you talked about amateur versus professional. And it's something that I'm hoping he'll come on the show one day, but Stephen Pressfield wrote an amazing book called The, uh, yeah. the War of Art, which I read before right in my latest book. Um, and it was so powerful because he, and this is something I'm struggling with because I'm still an amateur writing because I haven't gone all in. And I want to get to this kind of scheduling and time management with you in a minute as well. But he described that an amateur identifies as that thing. They're all in and a professional knows how to separate what we do. And I just was such a great parallel to the firefighter who becomes only a firefighter and forgets that they are the husband, the father, et cetera. So talk to me about your perspective of the amateur versus the professional and these identity roles that you just talked about. Sort of the quotes that, that I use in the book is amateurs focus on outcomes, professionals focus on process or processes. And I think that what you're alluding to in my career, the, the, probably the, the saddest things I've seen, to be honest, uh, not the most dire, but just like emotionally makes me sad are these world-class performers, whether they're military, fire, police, athletes, who have spent most of their identity focusing on what they do. They've become what they do, and they forget that who they are is markedly different. What they do is a piece of who they are, but when that morphs, man, oh man, that's a tough one. And we all see that. Those are the folks that retire and then have a really difficult time, whether they're athletes, fire, police. Again, I don't, I'm agnostic as to the role. So I, I, one of the, the things you're bringing up, I think is, is very relevant here is, you know, how, how do we carefully monitor those different roles that we play and how are we feeding and watering those and falling back on some of those to make sure that we have, we're built on more than just one pillar of what we do. I think the amateur also rushes to do a lot of things. <laughs> the professionals are very deliberate. And, and it's ironic because you, you and I began early on in this podcast talking about different modalities for sport and youth compared, you know, Europeans compared to Americans. And we talked about the difference between specialized, which is, seems to be very American versus generalized, which generally, pun intended, seems to be more European per the Norwegian studies, et cetera. I will say this, that when we're young, we want extreme exposure to a lot of things. Young firefighter, young, you know, pre-firefighter, pre-police, exposure, exposure, exposure. But truly professionalizing is then being very deliberate, not necessarily, think of an athlete. I work with um, the, the number one uh, female surfer in the world currently. And she's at a point now where she's not going to go out and just ride waves for eight hours. That doesn't make sense. Like when she was young and she's five, you want the brain, which is a neural plant, just ride as much as you can, try as different thing, go play tennis, go whatever. 
But now as a professional, the professionals start to hone and they're extremely deliberate on what they're doing every day and what it is they're focusing on improving. So I think that's an also a, an, an overriding statement to not only do the amateurs focus on outcomes when they should be focusing on processes, but the amateurs focus on just a bias towards action in general, which is wrong, right? There should be the, the focus on the right action. Why am I doing what I'm doing today? How am I trying to improve my craft just ever so incrementally today in one area, not 25? So... Another thing that you were talking about, which kind of ties into this, was feedback. And I think this is really pertinent and circles around to our social media conversation earlier. As I've matured, I've realized that I'm only interested in feedback from people that I respect. And I'm, it can be, I'm shit, I'm fine, as long as it's from someone that is worthy hearing to. And I was literally just talking to a friend of mine who's Palestinian-American, one of the most beautiful human beings you will ever meet. I mean, he's done so much relief work in Syria and all kinds of places. Um, and he was, you know, as you can imagine, there's a lot of negative stuff when when images are posted from Gaza at the moment where atrocities are, you know, it's not politics. There are innocents on both sides of this, you know, conflict being killed. And that's, that's an absolute truth. And he was, you know, getting wound up by these comments. And I'm like, you, you you've got to think about who, who are you allowing in? You know, uh, do you value that, that opinion in the first place? But that's obviously a more extreme version. Talk to me again about, about the feedback, because uh, I love the way that you framed this not all feedback is necessarily going to be valuable to an athlete or a responder. hundred um, percent. I'm going to create more hate mail. There's a lot of hate mail going to come my way for sure here. Um, I, I think that I, I say this often, if I had, <laughs> I'm going to be, I'm going to try to be polite. Every time I open, pick your favorite social media medium for LinkedIn, whatever it is. If I had a nickel for every time I see a talking head that has no business talking about the discipline they're speaking of. Again, I'm going to always defer to the experts, right? I, as I've said that repeatedly through this podcast. But nowadays, you just need a $30 microphone and an internet connection, and you can call yourself an expert in anything, like literally without, there's, there's no filter, there's no oversight, there's no anything. So I would ask the listener, we talk about this in the book, I think it's a healthy way to approach this or Who's on your board of directors? Pick three to five people. And ideally, no offense, it probably shouldn't be a spouse, although that's you know maybe the next rung down, but literally people who don't have an emotional vested interest to tell you the right things or tell you the stuff you want to hear. The people are, I think mentors are good, maybe coaches, maybe coworkers from a different department. Um, who who can speak your language, who understand the stressors and the the architecture of what's going on day to day. And I think getting, we, you know, Alan and I in the book, we talk about is the feedback valid, vetted, and trusted? Meaning by, by valid is, does the person have a background where when they give me feedback, they can actually, it makes sense. They, they can, they, they know, they have a background that actually has validity. It's vetted. It's filter like they had no, this person has, they, they, they come from the right background, they've walked the walk, et cetera, and it's coming with the right intent. So the trust, I, they, I trust that they're going to give me the hard stuff that I don't want to hear, not just the, yeah, Eric, you're doing great. We bring up a great example in the book and I'll, I'll divorce myself of a, of a first responder example here it was a professional athlete 
who was going through a pretty significant slump. Um, and it was in Los Angeles and uh, anyone who watches sports knows of this figure and was going through a pretty substantial slump and went into a Starbucks. And we talk about this in the book, the barista example. And the barista noticed who he was, noticed obviously that he's in a slump because the media is talking about it. And apparently this barista had played this person's sport in high school. So the barista made it a point to come around the coffee counter and tell him exactly what he was doing wrong and how the footwork was wrong, in his opinion, as a barista. So it's funny. You're smiling. I'm kind of chuckling. But what isn't funny is then that player came to our facility and for the next week and a half, almost two weeks, demanded from the coaches that he make a change to his footwork because of the feedback he had received from a barista. Remember, sometimes when we're in a slump, whether that's an emotional, physical, personal performance, there's a a natural bias towards action. I need to do something to get out of it, as opposed to, am I taking a stepwise, reasonable approach to making sure that the feedback I'm given, with all due respect to a barista, that person's great at making coffee, which I love, but I'm not sure that's the most valid vetted feedback avenue or, or stream that could have the, that player could have afforded. So I think it's a very visceral example of how, it important, how important it is to make sure we have that board of directors that we can check in. And then most importantly, James, that we only make one change at a time and then measure that. Because if I change everything or I change five things and I start to perform to my liking and my peers or my boss's liking, then it's unclear as to which of those five led to the change. So I think there ought to be more of an empirical science-based approach to, okay, James is going to give me feedback because he walks the walk. He's a firefighter. I need some feedback and I'm going to take what he tells me, one thing, I'm going to make a change and see if there's performance or emotional or psychological changes, whatever it may be. If I get into it and I'm going to go skiing next week for a week to our place in Montana, if I get into a skiing accident, God forbid, and I tear my ACL, I'm not going to go to um, a barista. I'm just not. I mean, I'm going to go to a barista to get a coffee, but I'm going to go to someone who knows what they're doing to repair my leg and give me feedback on what I did wrong and how to repair that. So, Absolutely. It's funny, just total tangent. I just saw on social media a uh, a guy that was backwards skiing. So the chances of him skiing past this particular person were, I mean, one in God knows how many, but he discovered a snowboarder completely buried upside down, just the edge of their board sticking out and was luckily a well-prepared guy. His fitness, you could see, I mean, that was a big key as well. Because I can't imagine being there, finding the person they die because you weren't fit enough, which yeah. again, you know, I talk about that <laughs> in uniform, you know, lives depend on us, but he happened to have the, you know, the shovel and everything and ended up getting this person out. But my God, I mean, the, you talk about psychology, what that person must've been thinking buried in what must've been about four or five feet of snow, knowing damn well that he's way off piece and the chances of that single skier, not only passing him, but seeing the tip of his, his snowboard. I mean, yeah. absolutely incredible. Wow. Yeah. Crazy story. Yeah. So, all right. Well, then let's get to the book itself. So you mentioned about, you know, your your neighbor, the the sheriff's deputy being somewhat of an inspiration. You have this story career. You've worked with some of the, you know, the most elite warfighters on the planet. You work with world champion sporting teams. 
what made you write learned excellence and then let's kind of unpack what people find between the uh, covers yeah so for me it came down to um probably fatigue we talked about adrenal fatigue i had mental fatigue of just hearing in every corner in every direction i was looking that i can never do it the narrative of i can never do it he or she is doing because they were born that way and i'll be the first to say there are some anatomical advantages to certain trait or disciplines for sure like you know i a giraffe for example can reach fruit higher on a tree than an elephant for example so my point is, though, when you unpack, and we did, so in this book, Learned Excellence, we interviewed 32 of the world's best performers in their craft or in their discipline, ranging from CIA, Navy SEALs, firefighters, police, Cirque du Soleil acrobats, neurosurgeons, congressmen, ballroom dancers, big wave surfers, attorneys, neurosurgeon. We just tried to get a broad kind of brush approach of what I think most reasonable people would say, yeah, that person is, wow. Yeah, I know who that is. Carly Lloyd, Nathan Chen. I mean, people are going to know who these people are. And then when you hear their stories, it becomes clear as day. I just did this for 25,000 encounters, right? Over 30 years. But we use 32 as a prime example that there's a framework in place that we can accelerate learning and accelerate a lot of these disciplines. I mean, that book, Learned Excellence, it's mental disciplines for leading and winning from the top, you know, world's top performers. So it's what are they doing or what do they do on a regular basis to navigate and to incrementally improve and navigate adversity, focus on their identity, catalyze mindsets, balance and recover. Um, so uh, partnered with a, Google, a former Google executive, 16 years at Google, Alan Eagle, who had written two bestsellers. And I, I, I like that business vertical a lot. So obviously, I have the military side. I have the first responder exposure. I have the sport exposure. I wanted to bring in business and, and make it a consumable. I guess the last thing I'll say about the book is I'm most proud, I think, of it being practical, actionable, and consumable to anyone. And that was the goal. Like, how do we take complex psychological theories, complex research, and mix in some of that with really good stories from people and make it consumable where anyone can move the needle of their own performance after reading it. So that was the goal. I want to get to some of the takeaways. And I mean, I'm already intrigued. I really am. I mean, all the, the way that you've described the people in the book is the way that I look at the guests on this podcast. I am a firefighter. I have firefighters on here, but I have boy soldiers and Navy SEALs and neuroscientists and all the people, because again, that Venn diagram, you get that beautiful overlap. But before we get to, to what you found amongst all these high performers and obviously the tens of thousands that you've seen with your own eyes, what are some of the, the fallacies or myths that maybe some of these talking heads are out there, you know, um, pushing out into the world that actually don't align with your, your findings in, in your book and your work? So one of the fallacies that I halfway agree with is their their brains and their approach and their mindset or their psychology is different. It is. I mean, like you can talk to neurophysiologists and you can, you know, take the brains of elite SEALs, elite firefighters. I mean, you can find studies up and down the internet that are valid research studies that the brains are different. The problem is, is the brains developmentally become different. <laughs> we, we haven't taken any people from, from birth and followed them with you know, neurophysiological 
longitudinal blood work to see okay. So I think that that's, I'm getting deep here, but one of some of the noise I sometimes hear back to your comment is that, well, they're just different. They're different, but they've become that way by learning and by incremental failure and by failing forward and by getting and receiving feedback and by using techniques to make sure that their human stress response doesn't become overloaded like we've talked about where it's adrenal fatigue. They are focusing on having fun and not making it a chore. They are focusing on connection. They are focusing on balance. So there's a lot of, again, the chief noise I hear by far is you just have to appreciate this beauty that's, you know, in this discipline as a once a generation beauty. And it's no, it's noise. Anyone can do what any of these men and women, and they'll tell you the same thing. You don't need to hear it from Eric Potterat, right? You can hear it from themselves in the book. They'll tell you to a person they've become this way over time. So the profession that I was a part of, the way that you rise the the promotional ladder is a series of exams. And my observation, and again, not you know, tarring everyone with the same brush, there are some phenomenal leaders, whether they're wearing chief's bugles or whether they're still a firefighter. But there's there's a promotion without any human development, without any real inherent leadership skills. So you again between the the business world the sporting world the military world what are you seeing as far as rank versus leadership rank is easy leadership is hard <laughs> there's the, there's my bumper sticker statement um i think <laughs> leadership nice is yeah leadership is not um that there's a lot of things there that are learned over time through proper mentoring etc delegation um, feed, you know, giving and receiving feedback. I will say you, you're asking a, a hard question, but I'll give you a, a perhaps a deeper, harder answer, especially with leaders. Now we talk about elite performers in general. I've been able, I've been lucky enough to work with thousands over 30 years, but the leaders among those a little bit different. And for me, this isn't in the book and I wish it had been, maybe it'll be in a second book, who knows, but there really are, I call them kind of the four horsemen. There are four core characteristics that I notice, not only in, in talking to these NBA coaches, the police chiefs, that there are four core things that most of them are have doubled and tripled down on. One of them is emotional intelligence. And by emotional intelligence, we can get academic here and geek out on what the definition is. Are you in touch with your own emotions? Can you uh, have the radar to to understand the emotions of the people around you, and can you balance those, et cetera, et cetera. I simplify this, and I call it feel. <laughs> can you read a room, and can you feel the person in front of you? Can you feel the atmosphere? Can you bounce that off of your own stuff and be emotionally intelligent to navigate whatever decisions need to be made? So feel, okay? Our emotional intelligence is one. The second one is one of my favorites of the four. It's called reflective thinking. Are the And I think I would invite your audience to, to really do a gut check here and ask yourself, think of the best leaders that you've ever had. And I'd be willing to bet you, and I'm not a better here, but I'd be willing to bet you he or she is quite reflective. And by reflective, I mean, think of a chess player. By the time a chess player is making a move, he or she has thought of two or three counter moves that can be made meaning 
They are very strategic and they don't have, here it is again, a bias towards or a rush towards action. They want to survey everything and then make the right decision for the right reason before they execute a decision or an action. So good leaders I have found, and I've seen this in the ones, some of them we interview in the book as well, they're very reflective. People with low reflective thinking may say or do something very fast, but by and large, they say to themselves afterwards, sheesh, I wish I'd given that more thought. I didn't think about that angle. So emotional intelligence, reflective thinking. The third is empathy. And now I'm going to get a little touchy-feely, right? But I, the ability, the best definition I can come up with here on the podcast is the ability to temporarily put your own perspective aside to understand the perspective of other. So I may not know who James is, but I'm going to take the time to put my own biases, my own perspective about firefighters in general and say, okay, I want to understand this guy's pain points and his perspective through his lens. Once I do that, then I can help. I can come to the middle and I can then bring in expertise that I may have or not. But first, I need to lead with empathy. I need to understand the perspective and pain points or perspective of other. Okay. And then fourth and last would be curiosity. To me, the best leaders I've ever both interviewed, been a part of, or had myself in the military and even in sport are curious creatures. They're more of the what and how people than the what, than the, than, I'm sorry, they're more of the how and why people than the what people. What is a dime a dozen? I can find an answer to what now on Google. That's easy. The how and the why things work, I think, truly flex subject matter expertise. Good leaders are curious and they're going to stay on top of their discipline because they're constantly wanting to know more about and get better why things work. How can we make them better? Not just what it is, what it is. So sorry, I went off on those, but those four are on the leadership perspective, by the way, all learned, (laughs) right? No one comes out of the womb knowing any of those four. So no, it's it's important because when I'm when you're listing these out, I'm thinking about the crisis that my profession is going through at the moment. And as I said, you know, we're overworked, underpaid. Um, you know, we have a hiring crisis. That means that it's not me. I'm not in the service anymore. The men and women wearing uniform right now are being asked to do more with less because there aren't enough bodies. And you know, this very kind of reactive way that we're doing it is resulting in diseases, deaths, divorces, etc., suicides. Yep. Um, and when you think about empathy, what we see a lot of times, whether it's the county or city council member or the police chief that pushes papers behind the desk now, and I mean that simply as you know, not working on a rig for 24 hours, is there's a loss of empathy. And then when it comes to the curious, you know, the curiosity side, it's easy just to stay within the parameters of the fire service. Oh, well, I just you know spoke to this chief from this fire department, and this is how they do it. So rather than going to the Navy SEALs, the SAS, you know, Google, Virgin Atlantic, you know, how do you do yeah. it? You know, the, the one thing that the fire service likes to throw around is that the fire service is a business. And I always say, okay, well, then if I, I disagree, we're not here to make money. We're here to be there when people are having their worst day. But if that is the case then why are you working like an Indonesian sweatshop rather than going to Google and Virgin, these proactive business models, and asking them? Because you're going to find out they've got a short work week. 
they you know exercise and nutrition as a priority with their people and you're going to see the same things that you're still not doing there so hey James I would meet them where they're at I wouldn't change their words and again I'm not this isn't a criticism of you but they, look I, am I opposed to that do I believe that my my cop friends and my firefighter friends are in a business of, of course, that's preposterous to me. But if the person believes that, one of the best mentors I ever had told me, you have to meet the person where they're at in order to, in, in order to foster change. So I think that if they're going to use the business metaphor, you said the ex exact right thing. Let's call it a business then. Okay, they're in a business. How do we improve productivity? Well, I can show you studies until... <laughs> until we drown in them that focus on balance and recovery, increasing productivity. So I, I would just meet them where they're at saying, okay, if you're going to call this a business, let's make the business more efficient and more productive by doing these things. I, it sounds awful to call it that, but at the end of the day, okay. And you said the right thing with Google and all the, the wellness programs. I mean, they've weaponized wellness now and it is powerful. It is, it's moving the, it has moved the needle and continues to move the needle. So yeah. Well, even some of the you know most proactive corporate companies have switched to the four nine-hour days now, and not ask you know that not cut salary or anything, and they're finding that they're as if not more productive because these people are getting an extra day and they're becoming more innovative. How do I get the same amount of work done in four days now? Because I mean, we all know any of us who's done a job that they didn't absolutely love. You just kind of, you know, that inbox is never empty. It's going to be there the next day. So how can you be more efficient? So even if you use that corporate example, well, again, you know, they are, they're, they're valuing rest, recovery, sleep, efficiency. Um, so, you know, but again, it's that lack of curiosity. You're calling yourself a business without really doing the work to underline your, your ethos. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I, I'm having flashbacks, to be honest with you, of, you know, being in the military. And when, when I was the, the psychologist, I was the first psych psychologist at BUDS. And we had, obviously, it was post 9-11. So we had to iterate and develop programs for resilience. Um, and and we, we had the resources to do that. I, you know, on the flip side, I go to my friends who are cops and, and firefighters, and I'm Again, I'm going to create more hate mail today, but it's it's like I, I was appalled. I honestly was appalled at the lack of resourcing of this. And I'm like, my goodness, this is the like if we're going to resource anything like you're spending more on boots than you are on some of the resiliency programs here. I mean, what what are we doing? I mean, feet are important, but actually the greatest resource is above the neck and between the ears. Let's be careful here. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to throw something in and then revisit the book and then we'll go to some closing questions but it's i think it's important that we do discuss especially as the seal community has lost so many men to suicide i mean especially recently it seems like a, you know over and over and over again i see more and more one of the other things that became apparent to me um over these these years and again i you know a white belt constantly curious interviewer um but i'm getting these amazing life stories and People on here that have been right there, two of you know, one, two of them actually completed their suicide attempt. They just survived. Kevin Hines survived jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, Emma Benoit survived shooting herself. Um, and over and over again, of course, there's the one element of wanting the suffering to end. But another piece that really 
not even surprised me. I just didn't think about that totally pushes against the kind of shame that's put on suicide was that feeling of being a burden. And when you look at the brain as being miswired, so we can't understand a, a brain in crisis when you're not in crisis. You know, it's trying to understand what a femur fracture is like when your leg isn't broken. But you then go back to how a lot of us talked about suicide. Oh, it's cowardly. It's selfish. How could you think of your kids? And then I hear these, these you know, courageous men and women come on the show and pour their heart out and tell their story. And at that moment, they believe that they were a burden to their children. They were a burden to their wife, their husband. And so suicide was a selfless act. It was a courageous act in that mindset at that point, which goes against our very biology biology to, to survive. What is your perspective of that? Because I feel like are you feeling like a burden should be front and center on the on the the you know the posters and the PSAs and all these because it just doesn't seem to be discussed and it totally debunks then that selfish cowardly rhetoric that a lot of us were raised on. So I'm a huge fan. I think that's um, that's perhaps the my favorite part of this podcast to be honest because I actually think that this you probably saw me smile as you were talking about this. This is. This is very relevant. I think it's, and it's, unfortunately, it's not a narrative you hear much about, to be honest. But I, but I have to look I, back to my one of my mentors. You have to meet people where they're at, and you have to listen, especially to the survivors of this. And if that's the mindset they had, who am I? Like, I don't get paid enough to say, "Oh, I'm sorry, that's not what they mean." No, <laughs> I think that's that's fair. The other piece here that that. I was struck with, and, and I can't speak because I'm not a firefighter. I'm, I'm not a cop, um, but I was a naval officer for 20 years. And, and I think that it's the most impactful, valuable work. I will probably, on my last breath, I will look especially at the SEAL community. I was lucky enough to be with them as their psychologist. I, I talk about this a little bit in the book. Nothing is going to come close to that. Nothing. That's just a given. You just have to kind of put that aside and be like, okay. That said, one of the things that I saw that was difficult for these men, and by the way, women in the military who are transitioning as well, um, is just a lack of a true sense of community afterwards. So while I think what you've just talked about is probably A1, as we need to hear from the survivors on hem them feeling like they were a burden, A2 <laughs> might be have we created a community that is completely, um, how do I say, relevant and, and more authentic to their experience as not only their role, but what they've experienced. And I'm not sure, I can't speak to fire. I wish I could. I wish I could speak to police. I can only guess, but in the military, this is where I think it's fallen short. I mean, the military creates, and, and again, I, I loved the military for 20 years. It was great, but it creates a culture of like, you know, you shop at on base at commissaries and you create an uh, acronyms that only military members understand. And then at the end of that bullet train, whether it's four years, five years, or retired at 20 or 30, the bullet train stops and people get out with an unbelievable role that they've been playing that, by the way, no fans, no no media, no ESPN, no blogs about it, doing incredibly relevant and impactful work, 
the bullet train stops, the doors open, they walk out, the bullet train doors shut, and it takes off again at mock speed. And they're in a culture that, yeah, they're Americans or they're Brits or they're Finns or whatever. I don't care. Um, and I'm just not quite sure because the, a lot of people, my experience, and again, I've had a very good experience, but I can see where like my employers didn't really care, didn't ask questions about the military. My neighbors really did care. I mean, that's, and I'm sure that's the same for fire and police. And I do think that's, I'm going off on this probably a little bit longer and I'm sorry, but I think it's a cultural misalignment afterwards that people that really don't fully understand what I've experienced authentically. Um, yeah. So a better sense of community, I think, is the second answer to that burden issue as well, to be honest. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I've had Sebastian Junger on several times and you know, his book Tribe, for example, I think was such a powerful perspective on that. And I think where we drop the ball so poorly in the fire service specifically is we have done the worst job of branding. Like people still in 2024, why is there a fire engine on my medical call? Or, you know, you guys just sit around and, and you know, work out and play cards. And, and it just drives me crazy. I mean, how, how have we got to this point? I think the, the whole, you know, the, the tongue in cheek joke about every SEAL's written a book, there's a lot of upsides to that. You know, you don't need to know the operational secrets, but to understand, as you said, what some, you know, some of these incredible warfighters have done for this country is really important. What kills me is that we don't have that in the fire service. And I'm writing a book now that my pipe dream is to make into a TV show. So maybe we can not only tell that, but I want to tell the multi-generational story woven into that as well. But, you know, we, so you have these men and women that serve for 10, 20, 30 years. Every third day they left their family. I mean, they literally, if, if they had a 30 year career, they've been away from their family for 10 solid years by that point. Unreal. And then, and then one day the bay door closes behind them and that's it. There's no VA. You know, there's no place that they can all meet. Like you're done. No, no health insurance, nothing. You know, you can have Cobra for a year and then, you know, buy a Felicia. So you've removed that community, that purpose, that identity. Yep. And you then go back into a community that has no idea what you did because our profession is so bad at letting them know what we do, which also then in turn is the resistance for giving them more rest and recovery. Well, why do they need time off? They don't do anything now. So this is what I see with us and a lot of our men and women in, in fire, police, you know, corrections, dispatch, they really, really struggle after because, as you said, there isn't that community. There isn't even an understanding of what these men and women do when they leave their families to protect complete strangers every third day, for example. Totally agree. Totally. Beautifully stated. I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Well, I want to just revisit the book for a second. So we talked about the kind of myths. What are some of the the takeaways? Of course, I don't expect you to to describe the whole book and people listening can buy the book and, and learn from all these great high performers. But what are some of the the, the overlaps in the Venn diagrams that you did see with all yes. these great people? Yeah, it's a great question. So for us, for Alan and I we, we, I, we put together a framework that really focused on five main verticals. There are five, when you look at kind of the shared concentric circle, shared variants of concentric circles of all of these disciplines who are the best in what they do, it really came down to five. The first is a, a more of a focus on identity over reputation. So the best performers in the world 
they're focusing a lot more on identity markers and making decisions based on their identity and care really a lot less about what people think. They just accelerate that natural progression that most humans have. So the first is identity over reputation. We unpack an entire chapter on that. The second is mindset. Um, not only do, do we find the same thing that Carol Dweck found in, in her great work of growth mindset. Yeah, the best performers in the world do have a growth mindset, but they also have a challenge versus a threat mindset, whereas they view setbacks and obstacles as nothing more than a unique challenge that can be solved. And thirdly around mindset is that issue of having a different mindset for every role that they play. So we unpack chapter two on mindset and how you if you want to be the best in your craft, you need to have a different mindset for every role that you play. The mindset that makes you an effective firefighter is not going to be the same mindset that's going to make you an effective father, mother, et cetera. It's not going to be. Um, thirdly, we have an entire chapter on process, um, really through great stories as well, that focusing on processes or recipes to performance rather than outcomes and really surrounding yourself with valid vetted feedback and those boards of directors, et cetera. So chapter three is there. That's the third differentiator. The fourth was adversity tolerance tactics. When you look at the best men and women in their craft, they're generally doing the same 10 things to navigate through adversity or stress. Pre and post performance routines, breathing, visualization, positive self-talk, thought management, contingency planning, et cetera. So adversity tolerance is the fourth uh, and then the last is balance and recovery. So these five main pillars are truly the best differentiators between if you want to be the best in your craft, I don't care what it is, really think about an operational way to practically and actionably improve in those five areas. So that's what the book is about. Beautiful. Now, where can people find the book? Uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. I just sent you, again, our publicist, I apologize. I just sent you a galley. You should have that galley in your inbox, James. But the average uh, or anyone can go now to Amazon. It's called Learned Excellence, Mental Disciplines for Leading and Winning from the World's Top Performers. And Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, anywhere now online. Um, Audible is great too. Uh, Pete Simonelli, I'm going to throw out a, a nice uh, shout out to Pete. Pete, I, in my opinion, is the number one uh, narrator in all of book uh, he's a he's a voice actor, and he did he did the uh, the narration for the book Pete Simonelli. So, yeah, excellent, brilliant. Well, I want to throw some quick closing questions at you if you've got time. Yes, sir. All right. The first one we talked about your book. Are there any other books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our conversation today or completely unrelated. Uh, I just finished uh, about whatever a month ago, uh, Peter Atia's uh, Outlive. It's on my shelf right in front of me. I'm a big fan of this book. Um, I think he's one of the world's best in what he does. Um, he's a physician and really talks about in a very practical, matter of fact way. It's 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 full. It's full of gems. So I'm, I'm a big fan of, of that book for sure. On the mindset side, I have to throw out uh, Relentless. I like the book Relentless. Um, and then I also like The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. Those are ones that come to mind that I'm a big, big fan of. Brilliant. What about movies and documentaries? Um, yeah, I'm going <laughs> to, you're going to, again, you're going to judge me. I'm not a TV guy. I don't, I, I'm a reader. Um, I just don't, I very rarely watch anything. And I'm sorry to Hollywood. I'm sorry to the producers out there. I just, I'm, <laughs> 
I'm, I'm the bad guy to ask. So, yeah. No problem at all. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Uh, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I'm going to come up with, I think David Wurzel, he's in the book. Um, he's a, he was a volunteer firefighter. He runs a, a great organization now out of Narberth. It's the last name is W-U-R-T-Z-E-L, David Wurzel. I think he can he can probably walk the walk better than I can with a lot of the, obviously, the fire and the police. And he's he's got some fantastic stories and he's very pro-resilience. And he, he brings up, he's just written a book, I think, uh, on spirituality and that spiritual domain as well, but in a non-religious way and really finding meaning and spiritual meaning to what you're doing beyond just kind of showing up day to day. It's he's a powerful guy. Brilliant. I recognize the name. I'm, sh I'm sure our paths have crossed. I don't think it's been for a while, but uh, I'll have to look him up. So thank you. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure where people can find you, what do you do to decompress? Uh, we split time. In fact, we leave on Wednesday, but we split time. We have a home here in San Diego about eight months a year, and we spend about four months a year at our home in Montana. Um, so I'm a big outdoors guy. Uh, I'm a big skier, uh, mountain biker, hiker, fly fisher, etc. So we, the great state of Montana, I just unplug, get out in nature. Nature is my direct answer to you. And specifically Montana is my outlet. So. Fantastic. Well, you mentioned you're not big on the social media side. Where are the best places to find you and the book online? Yeah, it's, uh, online is going to be again, Amazon, find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm a big fan of LinkedIn. I try to post things that I think are relevant, whether the research articles that I come across that I think can move the needle in performance, I'll post those or a podcast or something. Um, so LinkedIn is something I do. And I've been told I need to, by my daughter that I need to get Twitter or an X, but I, whatever, I'm, I'm slow to this. So I'm, we'll, we'll see. You're not missing much. I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, so, I love Instagram and my, my page is curated. Um, you know, we have a pretty, pretty big community, but the moment you put something of value that's unique, it, it's like crickets, you know, but then you repost a kitten on a skateboard and the world loses their mind. So it, it's a tool, as you said, it is a tool, but you know, right. some, sometimes it's, uh, I think there's a lot of a lot of value put on social media. There's this kind of facade that if you have a large account that you just have to tell people that you bought this thing and they're all gonna buy that thing. And yeah, no. This is this was my point earlier, man. There's a lot of noise out there and very little signal, right? So I think that um, you know, keep staying true to what you do, man. I think uh again, I need to give you kudos. Thank you for A, thank you for having me on, and B, I think this is this is the important stuff. Again, I I know that a lot of the men and women who listen to this are doing this for a living, but there's very little that I'll absolutely drop what I'm doing for. And it's going to be the people who run towards the gunfire, run towards danger, uh, run towards fire. And I, I think that's a different breed of human that I think we owe it as a nation. We owe it as society to really think differently on how we're bringing the best to bear to make sure that they can continue to do the work that not many people want to do because it's hard work.